I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, the most interesting ideas about fixing healthcare probably won't come at the federal level. They'll come from states. Not that they'll be easy to implement. I talked to one of the council members in Chicago who has been on the board for decades and said, I've never seen a backlash like the backlash we saw to the soda tax. But even if great ideas do bubble up, the federal government will eventually need to step in. If you look at the really significant interventions that have improved our healthcare system over time, it's been the federal sector that's led. Then we visit places all around the world without worrying much about checking in or checking out. But that wasn't always the case. Travel today is pretty much routine. Uh, If you think of the dawn of the hotel era, travel was actually fairly dangerous. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. When American voters are asked what the most important issue is to them, the economy and jobs generally tops the list. But this fall, just before the midterms, when Gallup polled on that commonly asked question, the most important issue wasn't the economy or jobs. This is the issue that is on the ballot. This election is about health care. I got into this race because when my mom was diagnosed with stage 4 ovarian cancer, she did not have health care. If they keep control of Congress, you better believe they're coming after your health care. The issue of health care shaped the outcome of House races, governor's races, and all sorts of other races all over the country. But since a Republican Senate, a Republican president, and a Democratic House seem unlikely to make a breakthrough on improving our health care system, the most inventive ideas have moved to cities, states, even the private sector. Here to talk about what could really shake up health care is John Gruber, an architect of the Affordable Care Act and a professor of economics at MIT, and Sarah Cliff, a senior policy correspondent at Vox and host of the podcast The Impact. John and Sarah, thanks for being here. Good to be here. Yeah, thank you. So um, first, let me just get some feedback on the assumption I just made that there's not going to be some sort of grand deal on improving health care at the national level in the next uh, couple of years. Sarah, does that sound right to you? That does sound right. You know, we're going into a Congress that is going to be divided with a Democratic-controlled House, Republicans in the Senate, and obviously President Trump in the White House. So, you know, I don't see any big movement on health care over the next two years. I see, you know, the Democrats in particular are going to take some time, refine their visions for kind of where they want to go next on health care, maybe Medicare for all. But they're kind of looking past 2020 at this point. The next two years don't really seem like the kind of space where we'll see really significant policymaking where I work in Washington. Hmm. John, do you feel similarly like you've kind of written off the national level for the next couple of years? Yeah, I, I think what Sarah says is exactly right with two caveats. One caveat is I think there is a slight hope of something on prescription drugs in the sense that mm-hmm. that's the one place the Trump administration has made the most useful and innovative suggestions in a positive way. Um, not all positive, but at least move in the right direction thinking about this issue, and it's a hot issue. I think the chances are very low, but it's going to happen anywhere. It might happen there. The other issue is the last— Like what? Like what? Like, what like, kinds like for of example, in- the Trump administration has actually proposed quite a quite radical innovation, maybe even too radical, uh, which is that the U.S. citizens not pay any more for drugs than their counterparts in, Europeans. in Europe pay for the same drugs. Indeed, many Republicans have come out against this proposal as socialism and as— as 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 um, deterring innovation in the drug sector, but the fact that even say that 
opens a window to thinking that there might be some room, although I think the chances are very, very small. The other piece that Sarah mentioned is important is to remember the Democrats don't even know where they want to be. And because we have, you know, I, I think the Democrats uniformly support the gains of the Affordable Care Act. I think there's a Sarah can speak better than this, but I think there's a breath in the caucus between those who would sort of incrementally build in the Affordable Care Act and those who want a single payer system. And how are Democrats going to resolve that messaging going forward to 2020, I think, is an interesting issue as well. Hmm. Um, We will get to that. But, um, John, I just want to ask you, you know, you're somebody who helped create what became known as Romney Care here in Massachusetts, uh, what became known as Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act on the national level. Has it been weird for you over the past several years? We saw 2010, 2012, 2014, uh, you know, uh, health care for the people who had voted for it, for the politicians who had voted for it was an albatross around their neck. People lost their jobs because of it. Then fast forward to 2018 and it becomes, you know, sort of top of mind for everybody. People have now gained jobs because they were in support of expanding the Affordable Care Act. Has it been weird for you to see this kind of seismic shift on this policy? Definitely gives me a little whiplash. I think what's weird is it's what I predicted would happen just four years later. So I knew health care would be a tough issue for the Democrats until 2014 because the law was passed, but it wasn't really delivering much. But I figured by 2014, it would be a positive. It would say, wow, we got this new insurance. We've changed. Insurers can no longer discriminate against citizens. It's heavily subsidized for many low-income Americans. Isn't this great? So I really was surprised at how negative it was in 2014 and, and 2016. It's now gotten to the point where I thought it would be in 2014 where people realize that this is a benefit for a large number of Americans and not really cost for many Americans at all. Um, and that most Americans are largely left alone by the Affordable Care Act. That was sort of the idea. So I feel happy that people now think it's a positive thing. Um, I just feel it's unfortunate it took sort of four years too long. Sarah, what have you thought as you sort of watch this progression? And as I mentioned, I mean, now you've got red states that are saying, yes, you know, we're still Republican and maybe we still support politicians who are really who voted against the Affordable Care Act. But we, we want some of its provisions here in these states. You know, in my view, I think the thing that changed between 2014 and 2018 was the fact that Republicans tried to repeal it in a weird way bolstered a lot of Democrats. I think it wasn't just the benefits rolling out. It was the benefits rolling out plus the threat of those benefits being taken away that catalyzed a lot of Democrats to run on health care. And one of the things you saw, like you're pointing out, Kara, is that you had three pretty conservative states, um, Utah, Nebraska, and Idaho, all vote to expand their Medicaid programs. This is a key feature of the Affordable Care Act to cover low-income Americans. It was supposed to exist in all 50 states, but a Supreme Court decision said it had to be optional. So you've seen this kind of mixed picture with generally liberal states adopting Medicaid expansion, some conservative states holding out. And I just think it was a really fascinating result to see these red states where Obamacare isn't popular at all saying, we have a lot of uninsured people. You know, we want to sign up for Medicaid expansion, even though our legislature hasn't done that yet. So you saw when this issue was taken to the voters, they were pretty excited to, you know, join up on this really key Obamacare program. So, uh, Sarah, let's talk about some of the innovative things that you see states doing. Um, Point me to some programs that you find particularly intriguing and you think are worth watching. 
Yeah, so even though I work in Washington, I'm a bit of a state and city government nerd. I think the most interesting things that are happening right now are actually at the local level. And this season of my podcast, The Impact, is all about state and local policy experiments. And one of the most exciting ones I think going on right now is happening in South Carolina with pregnant women. I think some people might know that we have a really serious problem in the United States when it comes to maternal mortality and infant mortality. Our rates are much, much higher than they should be for a developed country, you know, for a rich country like the United States. And South Carolina is actually doing something that is surprising and innovative to try and make sure more moms have healthy deliveries. They've started implementing this program statewide. They're the only ones doing it statewide, where they have all of their moms on Medicaid, the program that covers low-income Americans, do their prenatal care visits in these big group sessions. So, you know, you don't just go in and get your blood pressure checked and the baby's heartbeat heard. You do that, and then you spend two hours talking to other pregnant women. And what they found is that these visits, they actually seem to reduce the rates of premature birth, which is the highest risk factor for infant death. And, you know, when you think about, well, what does having a dozen pregnant women just sitting in a room right. talking, That's how does that save? That's an amazing preventive thing just sitting <laughs> right. around and, and chatting it's... is helping you, you know. It's yeah. cheap. It's not some like fancy piece of equipment that you need to install in um, you know each in each clinic. And the hypothesis that the researcher who's working on it thinks is that you're actually lowering stress among these pregnant women. That pregnancy, you know, I just had a baby six months ago. Pregnancy is a very stressful, confusing time. And when you lower stress, it actually changes the body. It reduces inflammation in the body. It makes the body kind of a more comfortable, easier place for a little baby to hang out longer and not be born premature. So it was really a policy experiment I was skeptical of when I went into reporting about it. But the more data I read, the more of the sessions I attended, it really seemed like something you know innovative and, and not hard for other states to scale up. And do you think the motivation for South Carolina in supporting this initiative, um, beyond the obvious, like, help to individual people, do you think at the end of the day, there's also a money thing, right? If if babies are not born prematurely and they're not in the NICU for two weeks, that that's a positive for South Carolina in terms of being able to pay their health care bills. There is. You know, I think there, the money definitely matters along with the health outcomes. You know, when I talked to the doctor, this um, OBGYN based in Greenville, South Carolina, she started doing this in her clinic and then she brought it to the state Medicaid program and said, we should do this all across South Carolina. And a lot of the argument she made was financial. It is really, really expensive to have babies in the NICU. It's not just bad for their health, but, you know, you're going to rack up a lot of bills for the Medicaid program. In South Carolina, Medicaid is paying for about half of all births that are happening in the state. So, you know, they saw it as both a health outcomes win, but also a financial win if they could have, you know, if you could on the front end, you know, invest in these visits that are relatively cheap. You know, you're talking about one nurse leading a dozen women in conversation versus having all these high costs on the back end and having premature babies who need really specialized, really expensive care. John, when you hear that story, you know, we think about like the states as the laboratories of democracy. Do you feel like states are like, you know, nobody's coming to help us. We are also the laboratories of health care. If we want to help outcomes, but also help costs, we have to do it. Well, I think it is hard for states to be the laboratories of healthcare because sometimes you have to invest a lot of resources to learn. I think what Sarah's described is a wonderful example 
of a state as a laboratory. If it turned out this didn't work, they wouldn't wouldn't cost them a lot of money. Um, if you think about the ultimate example of a state as a laboratory for healthcare, which is Romneycare, that was a very expensive for Massachusetts to run that experiment. So I think it's great if we think about states and cities as laboratories. I think we have to recognize that the the dollar clout you need comes at the federal level. And I I go back to what happened, you know, after we passed Romneycare in Massachusetts. Many states around the country were very interested in having similar programs. I work quite closely with Governor Schwarzenegger in California, try to put this program in, and they all realized it was just too expensive. And at the end of the day, you needed the federal government through Obamacare to come in and do it. So I love Sarah's example. I think there's, we can learn a lot from the states, but I think we don't want to be too overly optimistic about the states' as laboratories here because ultimately they don't necessarily have the financial clout to really make major investments in that way. Hmm. Um, tell me, do you see things on the state level interesting that, that sort of intrigue you in terms of like going forward? Yeah, the one I'm most excited about is one I'm involved in, which is the state of Louisiana and their proposal to eliminate hepatitis C. Hepatitis C is one of the most significant chronic illnesses in America, it kills thousands of people a year. And like many chronic diseases, it can be managed, but until now, never really cured. A few years ago, they actually invented a cure for hep C. It's sort of a miracle. Savaldi was the first one that was invented by the drug company Gilead. And literally, it cured a chronic disease. I mean, it's sort of unprecedented. And it was expensive. It was $84,000 a year. But by any economist's calculation, a bargain. If you think about the value of the lives we save with this drug, it was a bargain. So um, I got a call from a reporter from the Wall Street Journal say I was talking to the head of Health and Human Services in Louisiana, and she was complaining about how much Chivaldi cost. And I said, tell her to shut up. It's a miracle. Uh, she should stop <laughs> complaining. So an hour later, she called me. Uh, she's a very forward-looking progressive policy analyst named Rebecca Gee. And she called me. She said, you don't know what you're talking about. We can't afford it. And we want to cure hep C, but how can we do that if we can't afford it? And so she put together a team of which I was, quite frankly, a late joiner. It's really my idea in any way, shape, or form to try to think about a very innovative way to finance this, which is a subscription model or Netflix model, whereas they're going to say to drug companies, we're going to open bidding. The bidding is for how little money will you wipe out hep C in our state? So we want to know, currently Louisiana spends about $35 million dealing with the hep C problem. We want to say for $35 million or less, will you give us as much as we need of this drug to wipe out hep C? Now, from the drug company's perspective, they still make a ton of money because the marginal cost of these drugs is like 100 bucks. So even, at th- even if it takes thousands of doses at $35 million, they still make a lot of money. For Louisiana's perspective, it's only a win because they won't spend any more than they spent before, but they can wipe out the disease. So it's the most innovative approach I've seen to dealing with the drug pricing problem we have in America, which is to say let's move from this pay-per-unit model towards the subscription model, and let's actually wipe out this disease in the state. It's incredibly innovative. So, so where are they in terms of saying, hey, what drug company is going to help so, us so wipe they, out hep they C? So they put out a request for information. Uh, a couple of drug companies responded. A couple of the makers, you know, there's really only three major makers of these drugs. All three responded positively. The state's currently in negotiations with CMS, with the government, about how to make this work, because this would be a radical new pricing model for drugs. Uh, this has never been done before. But the Trump administration has been, to their credit, responsive to thinking about this approach. And I think if it works, it could be a model to actually leading to eradicating this disease in America. It's really quite impressive. Hmm. So we're going to hold it right there for a second. And when we come back, more with John Gruber, a key architect of the Affordable Care Act, and Sarah Cliff, a senior policy correspondent at Vox. On the other side, we're going to look at the big kahuna here, universal health care, and whether states might try to make it happen. 
From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. We'll be right back. We're continuing our conversation about what many voters said was the single most important issue for them when they went to the polls back in November, health care. But with a Republican Senate, a Democratic House, and a Republican president, the real inventive thinking on health care over the next couple of years, at least, looks to be at the state level. I'm back with Sarah Cliff, a senior policy correspondent at Vox, and John Gruber, an economist at MIT who helped create the Affordable Care Act, which is often known as Obamacare. And Sarah, um, I want to get into the concept of universal health care in a second, but let me take a step back first and just ask you how much you think health care costs are intertwined with things like access to healthy food, you know, access to um, exercise, decent living conditions. Um, how much are those things connected with health care? And then how much do states see them as connected with health care? I think they're connected, but they can also be pretty tricky issues to tackle. So I think it is certainly the case if you you know don't have the place or ability to exercise, if you're not eating healthy food, if you don't have like a place to live where you feel safe, all of those things are going to undermine your health. And I think we've you know really seen a lot of focus on these social determinants of health over the past decade or so. I think the challenge is how do you fix those problems? Because we're, a lot of times we're talking about a lot of really interconnected factors of having housing security, food security, you know, personal security, all those things are tying together. You know, we did an episode of our show this year kind of looking at two different ways cities are trying to change eating habits to get people to eat healthier. One of them was increasing food access. We looked at a program in New York City that worked with local bodegas and corner stores to put healthy foods into their shelves. And it turns out it just wasn't that effective. Even like when I go into a corner store, a candy bar is still more delicious usually than an (laughs) apple. Um, It can just, putting the food there, what we saw is that putting the food out there didn't seem to be enough to motivate behavior change because there's all these other things going on. Right. You know, another policy example from the other side, I think of that as the carrot, the stick version of this is soda taxes, Mm -hmm. which we've seen really cropping up in a lot of places over the past few years. And we looked at, you know, Chicago actually created a soda tax in last summer that was seemed to be working, that the data we have suggests that soda taxes do reduce soda consumption, that they are successful in improving public health outcomes, but they are incredibly unpopular. You know, it's not just like putting out apples on the shelf. It's, you know, making your soda cost 10, 20, 30 cents more. We saw the backlash against Michael Bloomberg. People just like, Mm -hmm. I think, innately didn't like to be told what to do, right? People didn't like to be told what to do. And in Chicago, the backlash got so fierce that they repealed their soda tax three months after it started. (laughs) It was just unsustainable. So it's it's an important area, but it's a tricky area because you're kind of getting into people's decisions about what do I eat? What is my life like? I talked to one of the council members in Chicago who has been on the board for decades and said, I have passed so many taxes and I've never seen a backlash like the backlash we saw to the soda tax. Sarah, you talked before about how Democrats, though they may have run on health care, represent a wide spectrum of views on health care. And I want to play you a a clip from um, Gavin Newsom, who was elected governor of California. And um, this is him from a debate uh, last year. And he's talking about his support for, in California at least, having uh, universal care. 
I think there's a lot of mythology about the cost of single payer, that somehow we're adding on top of an existing multi-payer system, when in fact it's about reallocating existing resources and using them more effectively and more efficiently by replacing the current multi-payer system. The fact is we're already spending $367.5 billion a year on health care, according to UCLA, in this state, 70 percent of it borne by the taxpayers. Sarah Cliff, I wonder how much traction you think this movement towards essentially covering everybody um, is going to get. Yeah, you know, I often expect if we're going to do single payer that it would be very plausible for me to see us starting with one state and then expanding nationwide, just like we did with Romney Care into Obamacare. But I think kind of going back to some of John's comments, you know, there's a few things that make it hard to do this on a state level. And the biggest one is that reallocation that Gavin Newsom is talking about. It is, you know, seems to be true that maybe a single payer system would cost us a little bit less, but it's really going to change who pays what for health care. And that becomes a really big hurdle. It often asks, you know, larger companies, employers to spend more, the wealthier to spend more so that we can help subsidize health care coverage for lower income Americans. And, you know, I think the last state that made a real serious push at single payer was Vermont in 2014 and 2015. And they passed a bill that they were, you know, going to do single payer. The governor signed it. They worked on it for about two years until they finally got to the point of figuring out, okay, how are we going to pay for this? And they realized it would require such significant tax increases that they backed off and abandoned the effort. And it is true, you know, Vermonters would not have had to pay their private premiums anymore, but you would have had these really big tax increases that, you know, reallocate who is paying for health care. And I think that's the really hard part of doing this. The other hard part of doing this on a state level is that you're working with a lot of programs, particularly like Medicare, run by the federal government, that are out of your control. But I think if there's any state to watch on single payer this year, it's probably California. Mm -hmm. They seem like they've done the most work on it, that they have the most support on it. Um, So, you know, maybe California is kind of like a mini country at this point. So (laughs) maybe they will be able to pull it off out there. John, it's interesting because, like, it's really popular in some places to say, let's cover everybody. Not super popular to say, let's really raise your taxes. Well, I mean, it's it's a bit scarring because... Sarah told the story. She didn't mention that I was the person who brought the bad news about how much it would cost to Vermont. (laughs) So I I was the person who was charged in Vermont with figuring out what it would cost. So the good news was that total health care spending in Vermont would fall by at least 10 percent if we put in single payer. The bad news is to pay for it, they would have had to double the entire tax base of the state of Vermont. Now, how could that be? be? I mean, if what you're paying for is less. great, Great question. It's because when we move to single payer, we replace a hidden tax with an explicit tax. The hidden tax is the fact that our employers today all pay us less because they give us health insurance. That's a hidden tax. If we say to employer, we can say to people, the good news is your employer won't give you health insurance anymore. That means they can pay you more. The bad news is now you're going to have big high new taxes to pay for it. People don't trust the former. They just focus on the latter. I think single payer is a lot of promise to it, but I still believe single payer advocates have not come up with a solution to this fundamental problem that it's hard to switch from a hidden tax to an explicit tax. And that's what sunk things in Vermont, hmm. was basically once you realized the size of the tax it was going to take, 
people just weren't willing to go there. Hmm. Let's talk about uh, one more kind of initiative. We've been talking a lot about states and their decisions. But there was an interesting sort of private initiative announced a few months ago. This is an alliance between Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and J.P. Morgan Chase. It, the initiative has been run by Atul Gawande, who um, a doctor, a lot of people know, who has uh, written a lot about how to improve healthcare. John, I mean, this initiative, I should say, has been shrouded in a certain degree of secrecy. But you've got more than a million employees. Not, not they're not all in the U.S., but. These are three companies with a lot of power, and there's no nothing to say they couldn't corral more uh, companies into their sort of group here. What do you make of the fact that they're like, we're just not happy with the healthcare situation. We're we're going to try to do something to change it. These are empl- huge employers run by really smart people, but what's the innovation? And I think really, in some sense, I think about this new entity. The question is, are they going to go in directions where they can exploit those million people? and incrementally move in the right direction. So, for example, we have found there's ways you can aim them towards more productive and less expensive providers. They could do that within their population. On the other hand, if they're going to say we're going to renovate well, we're going to change the way people think about wellness, well, good luck. I mean, that just hasn't worked. And if anyone could do it, maybe they can do it, but I'm not optimistic. So I think that the question is, are they going to stay within their wheelhouse and say we've now got a million lives to play with to figure out different ways to innovatively move forward incrementally controlling healthcare costs. I think that's great. If they say we're going to invent some new program that's going to make everybody healthier, forget it. <laughs> um, Sarah, what do you make of employers now, at least a few big ones, saying we want something different here than what we're seeing? Yeah, I, I, I agree with a lot of what John said, that it's just really hard to evaluate what's going on because we have so few specifics on what this partnership looks like and, you know, such a wide breadth of companies, just even just within these three, being involved in it. So you could see it going in a lot of directions. I think they've hinted, at least from the coverage I've seen, that this is going to be something about leveraging all these employees that they have. And, you know, it is it is employers who are often stuck with a decent amount of the healthcare bill. And, you know, they are the ones who deal with the angry calls to HR when, you know, something isn't covered or our premiums are going up significantly, our deductibles going up. So that would be one motivation for them to change up their system, to create something that works a little bit better. But at the same time, if we're talking about an initiative that's just focused on the employees of these companies, then I don't know how wide reaching or kind of disruptive that's going to be for the larger healthcare system. I mean, all that being said, though, I would say Atul Gawande is a fantastic thinker and leader and, you know, really has done a lot of impressive research. And I, you know, once I learned that he was involved in this, it kind of gave it a lot more credibility. Like maybe they're going to come up with something really cool. Yeah. I just want to follow up because I, I think there's a hugely positive aspect of this, which is the federal government's paralyzed right now. States are budget limited. The real innovation should come from the employer sector. These are the people who are bearing the out-of-control healthcare costs in America. Most Americans have employer-sponsored insurance. So I think the great news here is employers stepping up to the bat. Whether it'll work or not, the fact that employers are saying we want to commit to being innovative is so important because I think they need to be the leaders. This is for either of you. You know, there's sort of one group of people we haven't talked about at all, which is, well, a couple of groups, but we haven't really talked that much about doctors or hospitals or insurance companies, like that whole piece of things. Are, are they concerned about out-of-control health care costs and the fact that health care is eating up more and more of our national budget? Is there innovation coming out of that space? Well, I mean, I think, you know, 
I am always stunned at how non-innovative insurers are. Uh, and I think the answer is they don't need to be. They just pass it through. They're just they view themselves as bill payers uh, and they just pass it through. And if costs go up, then the employers just pay more. And what do they care? So I think insurers have not led on cost control. Ultimately, I'm not sure what their incentive is going to be to do so unless employers really pressure them. So I think employers need to put the pressure on. Now, let me say, I think insurers have a huge amount of potential because they have huge amounts of data they can use to move forward. So I think I hope insurers will be innovative. I'm just not sure that they what what's going to change their way they do business. I think as to providers, you know, their incentives are all the opposite. You know, providers, their incentives are all to increase costs. Um, what is in it for a provider to lower costs? I and mean, providers, I'm sure, would like to have higher quality, but there's no return to a provider to, to lower costs. So I think that we can't look to them for leadership. It's really got to come from insurers, employers, and ultimately, hopefully, the public sector. From the people who pay the bills yeah, is exactly. really what you're saying. Finally, I, I wonder from both of you, when you uh, think about you know, a couple years out, do you think it's going to be the ballot initiatives? Is it going to be experimentation in states? Um, is it going to be deals done on the national? Where where do you think real change in healthcare is going to come from? Wow, that's a hard one. I guess I start from a level of sort of overall pessimism about the next few years. At the federal level, I feel like Republicans aren't interested and Democrats feel burned, even with the recent turnaround. Uh, so I don't see a lot of Federal initiative, I think states are going to do innovative things, but as I said, they're limited by these fiscal constraints. You know, to my mind, in the foreseeable future, if real innovation is going to happen, it's going to be on the employer and hopefully insurer, insurer space. In the longer run, I think the public sector does need to lead. If you look at the really significant interventions that have improved our health system over time, dating back to the federal government in introducing the prospective payment system under Medicare in 1983, which started the whole country towards a more rational way of paying hospitals all the way through the Affordable Care Act, it's been the federal sector that's led. And so I hope, my hope is that within a few years, we get back to a point where the federal government can lead again on this topic. Hmm. Sarah, what do you think? What do you see? Yeah, you know, I also see a really strong role for the public sector, you know, both at the federal and the state level. When I think back to that program I covered in South Carolina, you know, the only reason that expanded was because of South Carolina's program saying this is important and we want this to be something that all our patients have access to. So I think without, you know, that kind of leadership, it's really hard to see much innovation happening. But I think, you know, one of the reasons I would expect some change over the next few years is even after the Affordable Care Act, there's just such frustration with the high prices in the American healthcare system. Patients are getting a lot more exposed to those prices because deductibles have been rising very, very significantly over the past decade. So I think that that increase in deductibles, it is a hard thing for patients to bear. And I think it is possibly catalyzing some action around the cost of health care as us as consumers become more aware of the really high prices that we're being charged. Sarah Cliff is a senior policy correspondent at Vox. She's also the host of the podcast, The Impact. And John Gruber is an architect of the Affordable Care Act. He's also a professor of economics at MIT. Thank you so much to both of you. This was a great discussion. Thanks. Thanks so much, Kara. And by the way, if you want to hear more about the program in South Carolina that Sarah just referred to, which reduces rates of premature births, we will have a link to the reporting that she's done on it on her podcast. It's at our website, innovationhub.org.
story of a bad review and a very famous fellow. The review was about hotels, and the man was on his way from Philadelphia to Savannah. No rooms or beds which appeared tolerable, he wrote, everything else having a dirty appearance. But the traveler wasn't some disgruntled contributor to Yelp. His name was George Washington, and he wrote his review in a journal which described a 1791 tour of his brand-new country. Now, you'd think that George Washington could find some halfway decent places to stay, wouldn't you? Well, the problem was that there really were no halfway decent places. A.K. Sandoval Strauss is the author of the book Hotel and American History, and he's an associate professor of history at Penn State. He says, before the birth of the modern hotel, there were certainly taverns to stay at, but they generally weren't all that nice or spacious or easily found, which presented a serious problem for this country that had just been created. Nations in Europe and elsewhere in the world uh, regularly received foreign dignitaries, usually in the sort of castles or the palaces of the sovereign. And there was nothing like that in the United States because we had no kings. So as a result, people said, well, if we're going to act like a major power, we have to have the kinds of proper accommodations where trade legations or foreign ambassadors uh, can be put up in a style that is appropriate to their station. Otherwise, we're going to look kind of bush league, to be honest. And a country with scattered taverns featuring a few hay-stuffed beds here and there presented yet another problem. It couldn't be the sort of cutting-edge nation on the move that many of its early leaders hoped it would be. I mean, if you needed to go on a business trip and you had no way of knowing whether you could find a place to sleep at night, would you go? If you think of a couple of hundred years ago, or a little bit more than that, at the dawn of the hotel era, travel was actually fairly dangerous. Travel was very uh, catch-as-catch-can. So if you were out at night in the winter and you couldn't find somewhere to stay, you could freeze to death, right? There was no guarantee of any kind. The explosion of hotels beginning around 1800 and continuing for the next 200 years came to symbolize American inventiveness and mobility. They changed our culture and the culture of the world. They were places where brilliant minds met, where casual lovers met, where people encountered faces and ideas unlike any they'd ever known, and where people were barred because they were the wrong race or religion. If you happen to be traveling at this time of year, as many of us are, the thought of hotels can conjure up images of cookie-cutter rectangles clustered around airports. But the story of those places is a lot more revealing than you might imagine. A.K. Sandoval Strauss says, initially, hotels marked Americans' willingness to rethink themselves as a people, to stray from the places that they knew, and generally, to be a little bit more accepting of strangers. Remember that up to, let's say, just before the revolution, a lot of towns and cities literally had officials whose job it was to go around and if they found somebody who didn't belong in the town and did not have a reason to be there, to the legal term was that you would warn them out. You'd more or less approach them, say, hey, you don't look like you're from around here. What are you doing here? And if they had a reason like, well, I'm visiting such and such a merchant, um, they might say, well, okay, sir, on you go. Uh, but if, if you did not have a sufficient explanation, the idea was, well, you shouldn't be competing with people here for work. You shouldn't become a public charge. It was automatically suspicious for you to be in a place where people didn't recognize you. Do you think then that that like accelerated the mixing of cultures? Because when you have people coming into a place where they're not like the people around them, 
I mean, some of that is like people learn trends from other people. Like they learn other ways to dress. They learn other ideas. I mean, they, they may mix with people they never would have talked to or thought about before. Exactly. And Americans very much took pride in this, especially in the 1820s when hotels went from, well, there are a few here, there, to uh, there's one in every serious city or town. Mm. There was a, a whole new sort of slogan and ideology that built up around them. They were called palaces of the public. And Americans said, you know, in Europe, the sovereign may have a palace, but it is, you know, the sign of despotism and anti-republicanism. Whereas here we have grand palaces, but they don't belong to the king. They belong to the people. And commentators would go on and on about how wonderful it was to go and sit in the common parlor at the hotel and rub elbows with, you know, those around you in the, in the sort of spirit of kinship of, you know, here we are all Americans and for a regular common man to sit at the table with a political leader, you know, that was seen as a real achievement. So mm. it became a, a hallmark of accommodations in the United States to really declare that social mixing was a sign of, you know, this is who we are mm. as Americans. Mm. Um, let's talk about scandal or the darker side of hotels for a minute. One thing uh, that happened to hotels as they proliferated was that they um, became places for extramarital affairs for prostitution. I wonder if that's something that was widespread, if Americans started worrying about that in terms of like thinking about the hotels in their town. Oh, absolutely. I mean, first, let's remember that inns and taverns were long considered places of bad behavior and immorality. What changed with hotels is that they were so much larger and had so many more rooms uh, that it was easier to conceal what you were doing. Right, sort of debauchery in an inn or a tavern was going to be pretty much visible to everybody, but with a 500-room hotel, there'd be these mm-hmm. long corridors you kind of sneak off without being seen. Um, and indeed, that there's a story. It's one of those probably ap- apocryphal things in which a preacher was inveighing against hotels in the mid 19th century, and somebody said, "Well, you know, why are you so, so afraid of these institutions?" And he said, "You know, any place with a bar and that many beds has to be trouble." <laughs> So the combination of yeah. alcohol to lower one's inhibitions and lots and lots of beds, that was automatically suspect. Hmm. And indeed, what's interesting is that, of course, hotel keepers had to figure out how to kind of straddle the boundary between morality and business by being as respectable as they needed to be so that so they didn't get a bad reputation among respectable people, but not exactly turning away you know, customers who maybe didn't want to stay an entire night or two or three, but just wanted it for a few hours. So they'd, you know, for example, hotel keepers, um, if some traveling theater company comes through and the hotel keeper sees the daughter of a local prominent man with, you know, drinking champagne with one of the actors and, you know, he would immediately go, you know, find her, pull her away and send for her father because they knew, okay, uh, if if somebody respectable is going to be involved in debauchery, that can't happen. On the other (laughs) hand, they knew perfectly well that there'd be professionals uh, working the hotel at all times. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with A.K. Sandoval-Strauss. He's an associate professor of history at Penn State and the author of the book Hotel, an American History. Um, One big piece of the story of hotels is that for a long time, Hotels could bar people just because of who they were from staying at the hotel. And you have this amazing picture in your book. Um, 
It's from Atlanta from 1962, uh, so not that long ago. But it's of a man protesting hotel segregation. I'm just going to read the sign that he says. It says, um, quote, 12 southern cities have open hotels. Why not Atlanta? And the sign says NAACP at the bottom. And right next to this guy who is on the street, like on the sidewalk, uh, protesting that Atlanta doesn't have desegregated hotels, is a member of the Ku Klux Klan in a white hood. Um, Hotel segregation went on for a long time in America, um, and there were finally major court rulings against the practice. So was this hotels ultimately just kind of following court orders, and did they generally not uh, voluntarily desegregate? Well, it it depended. In some places it was, right? There were a lot of hotel keepers like Conrad Hilton, for example, was very much in favor of equality in hotels because he saw that – It was extremely embarrassing for the United States, which in the middle of the 20th century was fighting a propaganda war with the Soviet Union. It was highly embarrassing when uh, the agricultural minister of the African nation of Chad would show up at a hotel in Washington, D.C. and be told, you can't stay here because you're black, Hmm. right? If there were dignitaries from Haiti, if there were dignitaries from East Asia, from Latin America, racial discrimination was just deeply embarrassing and damaging to America's position in the Cold War. Hmm. So... Out of anti-communism, Conrad Hilton becomes a real fighter for equality. Hmm. There are entire states, like Illinois actually has a public accommodations equality requirement going back to the 1880s. But there were other states, most but not all in the South, which simply said, we are not going to pass that kind of a law. And so... In 1964, the U.S. Congress passes the Civil Rights Act of 1964, but then private hotel keepers, most notably in the South, and and it was the Heart of Atlanta Motel versus United States case in 1964 that leads to that ruling. So there had been state laws, there had been individual hotel companies that voluntarily desegregated, but for everyone else, it required overcoming that private property objection When you think about hotels over the last few decades as they've just continued to proliferate, as they've consolidated and in a lot of ways feel very cookie cutter, like there's tons of them outside airports. It's such a familiar sight. It almost doesn't matter what airport you're flying into. What do you make of this hotel industry that you've studied going back hundreds of years, but that in the last few decades seems to have also really undergone major changes? Well, interestingly, since about the 1980s, there has been a backlash against standardization. What is considered new and innovative changes. If in the first half of the 20th century, uh, the innovation was hotels that are reliable, that lots of people can afford. um, Holiday Inn is like the emblem of this, right? You can count on it. It's Holiday Inn at every... In Chicago, in L.A., it's it's Holiday Inn. That seemed like a good thing, right. but eventually yeah. people started to say, you know, I've, I'm seeing – I've stayed at this hotel in two different cities and the <laughs> same pictures are up on the walls. Right. The same carpets are on the floors. This is incredibly boring. Especially high-end hotel keepers began to say, you know, people want something special, something interesting, something local. That was a great time for historic hotels saying, ah, well, you can stay in some glass box cookie cutter by the airport or you can stay in, you know, such and such a hotel in the historic core of Memphis or the historic core of Boston. And they'd really play up the the local connections. They'd find old uh, sort of advertisements for these hotels and say, ah, yes, we go back to our foundation in, in, in 1872. And they really began to turn to history and turn to local 
color and flavor as a way of saying, you know, a hotel stay shouldn't be boring. It should be an integral part of your trip to this new and unusual place. Hmm. I would be remiss, obviously, without mentioning the rise of Airbnb, which isn't a hotel, but obviously is just like hotels, is meant for people on vacation or on business. How much sort of pain has Airbnb caused for the hotel industry? What do you make of this of the rise of something that's a hotel alternative, not a hotel, but has so incredible? It's just grown by leaps and bounds since being this little website, and it's worth an incredible amount of money. So obviously, a lot of Americans like it. Yeah. I mean, it's a real problem for the industry. I should say that the industry was already feeling the effects of online booking, right? Mm. So that when people started being able to to compare prices across cities and across uh, uh, platforms, that already drove down the profitability of hotels right there. Then Airbnb made it even worse because it was a, a lower cost and unlicensed competitor that offered a you know, an inferior product, but it's so much less money, right? You you can't get room service and they're not going to give you a, a pair of pantyhose or some shaving cream at somebody's private house like right. at a hotel, right. but it's so much cheaper that a lot of people go for it. So that, that once again reduced the profit margins of hotels. And uh, for example, they've tried to, to make Airbnb premises become licensed because they say this is simply unfair competition. That is, I think, one of the things that has led to some of the recent labor actions is mm-hmm. that corporations are feeling a bit squeezed. They're very profitable. Marriott is hugely profitable, um, but they're also looking to find ways to cut their costs. And right. one of those is to not pay their workers, frankly, what they're they're due, what they're worth. Another is to try to mechanize parts of room service or food delivery. So they're trying to replace people mm-hmm. or pay people less. Uh, and that's what's led to this you know, large strike of I think it began as eight thousand people yeah. uh, a couple of months ago right at Marriott so that, yeah all around the country you've seen people in different cities striking exactly yeah exactly so it's it, it is tough for them so is there something that creative um, that hotels can come up with to compete with Airbnb or do you think it's a kind of war of attrition where in the end the hotel industry is just going to become smaller I mean you're just going to see bankruptcies and you know, it's sort of a zero-sum game. As Airbnb rises, the hotel industry must fall to some degree. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that they emphasize is the social life of the lobby, right? When they have a really swank bar, when they have really elegant restaurants, um, it's a way of saying, hey, if you want to be out there among the beautiful people, meeting interesting folks, um, that's the same kind of principle as for example, a bar. You can always stay at home and drink. That's kind of sad in a way, but <laughs> the, the whole point of paying, you know, 10 or 20 times uh, the cost per unit of alcohol in a bar is that it's social, right? It's sort of uh, there, there are interactions that happen. There's, you know, commiserating, there's flirting, there's there's various kinds of activity. And I think hotels have tried to revive uh, the social life of their lobbies and of their bars and of their restaurants as a way of saying, hey, you can stay in Airbnb and it's cheaper, but you're not going to have uh, a stimulating or a sexy or a like an important business connection kind of an experience just sitting in somebody's spare bedroom. <laughs> A.K. Sandoval Strauss is an associate professor of history at Penn State. He's the author of the book Hotel and American History. 
Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been delightful. you how you feel about hotels and Airbnbs, especially if you travel a lot. And it's hard to find a more frequent traveler than Jason, a performer with Cirque du Soleil, who wrote to us. He's from New Mexico, and he now travels 48 weeks a year. I am an acrobat, and then I also double as a technician. And when you travel with Cirque du Soleil, you keep unusual hours. We show up with about 80 people in the middle of the night, like last night we drove in, and we expect our room keys laid out, uh, alphabetical order, the packet with the internet, local restaurants, everything along those lines. And it's just, it's something, you know, 48 cities a year you come to expect. And if those expectations aren't met, don't think the tired circus performers don't notice. Jason did when he checked into a room in Arlington, Virginia, right outside Washington, D.C. And last night, it was just done a little more sloppy. But when hotels get it right, he notices that, too. Last week, we were in Norfolk, Virginia, and the hotel staff, I asked where a burger place was because we got in about one in the morning. And they didn't point me in there. One of the bellhops walked me to the street and sort of gave me more hands-on directions. And it's that little thing that makes it not really feel like a hotel as much as you would think. And here's some more tidbits from someone whose travel schedule will knock most people's socks off. Jason travels with his own French press and a jet boil backpacking stove in case there's not a coffee maker in his hotel room. He often doesn't get his room made up every day. He's fine with using the same towels and bed sheets. He believes strongly in hotel reward programs. He doesn't use the shampoo or soap they give you. And he's going to keep traveling, he says, as long as he's young. Though his girlfriend is in a show in Dubai right now, so he may be headed out that way sometime soon. Jason Davenport is an acrobat and a technician with Cirque du Soleil. We'll have a list of his travel tips on our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also have production help from Wen Lei and Asil Kibbe. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.